I also don't think he loves how he sounds when he talks. I think that's Nobody a bit does. of a barrier. I mean, if you do, you're insane. And the only people who don't <laughs> mind it are the people who just have done it and like listen to it a lot. Yeah, no, I, def I definitely want to ask him, but it'd be exciting if he was if he was on Slee Ricketts. That'd be really cool. Yeah, no, no, I, def I definitely want to try to get him on. I will, I will say there are, it is interesting to me that I've started to, the, the response I've started to get from people when I've invited them is like, that sounds fun. I need to be careful. <laughs> really? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh my uh, God, that's so exciting. That means you're starting to like get, yeah, people are starting to, to hear about it. I, I think, Matthew, that what's going to happen is it, there's going to be like, you're going to L-shape it. And there's going to be one point at which like everyone starts listening. This um, is the, I think this is that point. I think this interview is the breakthrough. <laughs> this, is, this is one. Oh, totally. Hot yeah, takes the on one, Mary Malley. The one where I paddled about. This is it. I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Slee Rickets. So I, I don't want to get too meta-textual today, but we do end up talking. We do end up talking a little bit about uh, the, the the podcasting ness of podcasting. So I, I will I will dig in a, a, a little bit, partly just because I've heard from some people in in different directions and in sort of all different directions about. Uh, interview episodes, solo episodes, etc. And I was hoping I might clear up some of what I'm after. Not that I have quite accomplished anything <laughs> like what I'm after. I'm still working on it. I'm still working on it. So uh, I, I do plan for a variety of reasons to, to keep doing some solo episodes as well as episodes with guests. The so, um, so the the listeners, by the way, tend to be split between those who 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 <laughs> I'll say the small minority who only want to hear from me, and the the varied majority who who would sort of wish that some of my guests just hosted the podcast uh, entirely instead of me. I want to give you an, a, an idea of kind of what I had in mind when I set out to do this because there were going into this starting out on this ridiculous enterprise i to my understanding there were three basic kinds of poetry podcasts there were a podcast where you simply read your read a poem so you know you you, you read a poem particularly a poem you, you you like or you've selected for some reason for that day and maybe you say a word or two about it and then uh, that's that's it that's the end those tend to be very short uh, the Writer's Almanac is a is a pretty good example of that form. I always like the Writer's Almanac. It's uh it's 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 to the point, and uh, he he does have a nice voice, much as my wife despises <laughs> poor old Garrison Keillor. Uh, so that's one kind, right? Just poem reading podcasts, and those are fine. Those are probably the best kind, honestly. Uh, particularly if you're reading poems you honestly enjoy. So then the second kind of poetry podcast, and this is, uh, I think, far less common and maybe a little more slam or spoken word-ish, as well as being more British in, in, in my you know, limited listening experience. Th this is the, 
the kind of podcast that is, that is basically a, a single long form performance piece by a kind of an auteur poet performer. So the, again, there aren't a whole lot of those, but there are some. And uh, though I haven't fallen in love with any, I do respect that as a as I mean, that's that's truly to 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 echo uh, Angela's point from way back. That is podcasting as art, uh, good good, bad, or indifferent art. It is that is that is an attempt to make art in its own right. So so that's that's fine. So that's that's another kind of poetry podcast. The third and most common kind kind. Uh, well, not the most common, but maybe the most prominent kind is the Warm and Fuzzy Interview podcast. So uh, the New Yorker uh, poetry podcast is a great example of this. Poetry Foundation seems to have about 50 different versions of this where uh, it, a, a poet comes on, uh, another poet uh, shakes that poet's hand, uh, rubs rubs that poet's shoulders. They they engage in uh, kind of a, a, some light um, incredibly harmless banter, and then mostly they just talk about how the the poems are wonderful and they're wonderful and everything's wonderful for forty five fucking minutes. There, there, there is of course another kind, which is really what I was sort of aiming for, which is something closer to uh, the poetry gods, which was poetry reading and performing, but also a lot of gossip and shit talk and just uh, riffing as well as um, the the more serious um, and, and, and very, very short lived All Up in Your Ears, which was uh, um, uh, hosted by Vivi Francis, Gabrielle Calvacaresi and friends of the podcast, Jonathan Farmer, Sincerely and Kava Akbar, uh, ironically. Uh, sorry, that was unclear. Uh, <laughs> they all hosted the podcast sincerely, but uh, Kava Akbar is a friend of the pod of this podcast only ironically. So that was that that at least had a, that that podcast was a sort of an attempt to get under the hood and dig around in in poems and and sort of pull pull apart what's what's actually happening, what might be better or worse. Uh, but as I said, it was very very short lived. There's also uh, poetry sets, though I did not know about that, and we will get into more of that soon enough. But coming into the field, I thought, well, shit, I, I would love to have a little bit more honest talk, shop talk, gossip, shit talk, the kind of cozy, catty, technically rich conversation that I actually have with poets. This is what uh, Alice always calls the, the off mic conversation on mic. So that's that was really the goal with this podcast. And with that in mind, I, I realized that, you know, there are, as I said, there are plenty of very boring, uh, warm and fuzzy poetry interview podcasts. And there are also plenty of, you know, more or less warm and fuzzy uh, literary fiction interview podcasts. But most of the podcasts I listen to tend to be about politics or pop culture. And there's a there's a structural difference between those and these these lit these literary podcasts for the most part and the structural difference is that while the literary podcasts especially the poetry podcasts have sort of reverently handled guests to be interviewed the politics and pop culture podcasts when they have visitors those visitors are really treated as teammates as members of a team joining in to help talk shit about this thing that they all 
uh, are obsessed with, that they all love and have enough respect for to talk shit about. And that is really what what I am am hoping for. I am going to continue to have guests. You know, some of these will be more of a proper interview. I I actually uh, just sort of lined up a few pretty exciting guests. I'm, I'm really uh i'm really really kind of psyched about so that that is going to be coming up i'm finally reaching beyond my um <laughs> uh semi my immediate and semi-immediate circle of acquaintances some of whom are uh are uh, genuinely uh, brilliant as as you already know uh and some of whom are are just uh just ordinary run-of-the-mill jerks like brian platzer but uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna be doing some some interviews as well as I'm hoping some uh, inviting on of teammates to help uh, to help me gang up on poetry, which I would love for us to have enough respect for not to handle with such fucking kid gloves all the time. So, with that in mind, I have back on the podcast today Alice Allen of the aforementioned Poetry Says podcast. Uh, we we have a couple articles about John Ashbery. Uh, she br- brings up Ern Malley, but really it's sort of a rambling, uh, 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 silly, gossipy, uh, slightly bickering, uh, nitpicky, off-mic poetry conversation on mic. Let's get to that right now. Uh, I enjoyed your your kind of interestingly structured most recent episode. It was kind of kind of reminded me that like it's it made me want to like play with formatting a little more. You had this episode of Poetry Says where it was it was like no no bookends, no intro, just just like voicemails left back and forth between you and it sounded like your partner's coworker who's recently got into poetry. Is that right? Yeah, no, he's not. He's not my partner's colleague. He's just a friend of mine. But. Okay. Uh, yeah, I we kind of got halfway through the conversation, and I like I didn't include these messages, but at, at one point I was like, "Could I use this?" <laughs> and then I asked him like five more times because I just wanted to make sure that it was okay. But yeah, I, I'm really happy with it. it yeah, it was it's like different. it was like Rilke, but like letters to a middle aged poet. It had a little bit of that like ambiguity about the what it, exactly it was after but also like earnest attempt to dig into this question of like what what poetry is what it's good for and what what it's worth you know, like what's worth trying out with it yeah and he's coming from this position of just total openness like he's got no assumptions he's just like what is this thing and of course I completely fail to explain it in any kind of effective way. And at the end, the conversation just sort of dwindles away. Although that said, after after we recorded that, he did go off and write like a really good Petrarchan sonnet, which was really annoying. Really <laughs> annoying. After 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 his uh, total dismissal of, of rhyme and form is, is superficial and outdated, <laughs> you know, unnecessary. Really, yeah, yeah it's nice to know. see that he can do it effortlessly. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I, I thought you did you did about as well as one could do, which is sort of to say, like, well, here's a thing I like, and here's some specific poems that I think are worthwhile, and yeah, and like, do you know, that's about all you can. Like, part of me listening to him developed sort of theories on the fly as he was going, but wanted to say like, Hey, calm down, take it easy, like relax. But then I also think like, well, part of when you're starting out is you're just sort of scrambling to 
find your bearings and like say it's this no wait it's this no like that's that's fine that's part of what happens yeah but it is just weird introducing trying to introduce someone to poetry because it's really different to like we said last time movies or music or whatever you don't feel this weird sense of responsibility to defend the form as a thing and whenever I talk about poetry with someone who's just getting into it I feel this sense of like if I don't get this right they're going to just wander off and never come back. They're never going to come back to my weird shop with all my strange esoteric stuff that I'm selling because there's a mall down the road where they can get everything they need. Though at least in his case, it does, it felt a little bit like, um, like with a, like with cults often, like you, he sort of wanted to join a cult to start. Like he's really like, you know, you're not, you're not, you're not, uh, you're not preaching on the street corner. You know, it's like somebody comes to you and says like, oh, so I'm, you know, I'm curious about poetry. It's like, well, this, there's already something wrong with you if you're asking that question. So we're like, we can welcome. You'll come. You're like, welcome. You, yeah, you've, you've self-selected for this, this terrible <laughs> life. Um, so I wanted to quickly, if I could get you in trouble, just because I'm curious, we're in, in the, the, the Apple podcast algorithm when you look at a particular podcast there are it, it recommends shows to you oh, yeah. uh, like if you like this you might like these other things and uh what i found <laughs> curious was that very few there if you like uh slave rings by the way very few other podcasts you will like apparently it's a very short list but uh, if you look at yours and you look at mine there are two shows in common that it recommends if you oh, like, yeah. yeah, I mean, well, sorry, no, we, it says that you might like the other, like if you like what she says, you might like this one and vice versa. But then apart from those, the other, the other two recommendations are uh, Red Scare, which I don't know if you know it. I have heard of Red Scare. I have yeah, listened to it. Yeah. Like uh, uh, neo-Soviet contrarian dirtbag girl talk. I mean, it's kind of like, it's hard to define, you know, but, and then the other one is The Garrett. Which is an Australian show, oh, and it made me yeah. ask, want to ask, like, well, what is the fucking? What's the Garrett, Alice? What's I've never, you know, what's the what's the deal? What is it? Oh, math. This is why I'm asking. This is why I'm trying to get you in trouble because you know, like as soon as I saw it, I was like, Alice is going to have a hard time speaking in public. I, I can, you can, but you you don't have to. But I'm just, I'm curious. <laughs> what's what? It's a know. big deal Look, in Australia, apparently. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's. I've only listened to a couple of episodes. I think the majority of the episodes are interviews with fiction writers. Hmm. Uh, there's a few interviews with poets, which is probably why I ended up there. Um, but I think having only listened to a couple of episodes, it's one of those more like, oh, you just had a book out, come talk hmm. to me on, on my podcast kind of thing. So, yeah, but I think it's been going for ages and I should probably know more about it, but I only listened to a few. All right. Okay. That seems prudent. And it's brevity as a, as a kind of one. All right, I'll, I'll buy it. I'll I'm really picky with my podcast that I listen yeah. to. Like, I'm not, I'm not a particularly generous listener. Um, if I get bored, I'm gone. So, yeah, <laughs> that's. But that's the. Uh, there's um. There's a, actually a, uh, an Orwell essay. I'm hoping to talk with somebody about soon. That he, he talks about like part of the beauty of radio. This is like obviously way before podcasts. Is that you, you don't you know your listener is not captive um mm, exactly. like you you have free reign to talk as much as you want no one can interrupt but also your listener can switch away at any moment yeah this is why i don't get like a couple of times people have said uh you know i like your podcast alice but it's a bit long I'm like, <laughs> but i'm just turning off and go do something else like it's fine 
I w- weird. Yeah, or like you can you can also like pause it. <laughs> like, yeah. or like skip or yeah yeah I, I i suspect that there is a there i think there is a generational gap like in terms of how people take in podcasts like they're they're it does seem like my my, my impression has been that older listeners want shorter bites and i'm i'm wondering if they're like i mean i hope this is not the case but i wonder if there are people who genuinely sit down in an armchair and stare at the wall and listen until it's over which seems like insane at least like i don't know about you but like i i don't drive a lot but i have a lot of chores to do and that's you yeah. generally when i listen to things like when i'm doing laundry or dishes or something yeah that's what they're for yeah. right and like those there's no end day. like those go on forever those expand to fill all the time in the world so exactly. <laughs> yeah all right well yeah i i um we have a kind of an odd plan or program for today yeah uh, we looked at a couple different articles, and we're going to talk about two that are what they have in common is John Ashbery, and what we have in common is that we have read very little John Ashbery. <laughs> we what? are the best possible people to have this discussion. <laughs> yeah, we are fully yeah. equipped. Uh, nobody yeah. could do it better. So, uh, just to start, what is coming in cold? What is your working sense of John Ashbery? My working sense of John Ashbery, I don't know if I would say I'm coming in completely cold because the few Ashbery poems that I know I have spent a lot of time with, and one of those being Some Trees, um, which, you know, I've studied over and over again and like had memorized for a little while. So that's kind of like a bit of a Rosetta Stone poem for me. Um, But my sense of him as I kind of, I watched a bunch of interviews and did a bit more reading is that he's a hedonist and he Hmm. just wants to have fun. Uh, He would like you to have fun, but that's kind of a bonus. He's not really worried about reception or understanding. He is just doing his work in the way that makes sense to him. And um, he's somehow able to occupy this position of just kind of a big old shrug in terms of what you think of it. Yeah. Oh yeah. That seems, that seems totally accurate. You do then you, you have there at least there are a couple poems that are, you know, well, but also that sounds like you, you, you like, or you find valuable, you find worthwhile. Yeah. I love, I love some trees and I really like another poem of a really early poem of his called the instruction manual, which is a really straightforward poem about having a boring office job and wishing that you were somewhere else. As the, I, as some I got some the, trees was the, was that the title poem of his first book? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, and that's the other thing is I sort of try to scramble to like get, like refresh my Ashbery memory. It's fucking enormous. Like he has so many poems. I mean, you can't even, you can't, I don't think you, there is a collected. I mean, they're, they're like collected for certain stretches of decades, but like even the most recent one, I think ends in like the late 80s. I mean, it's insane. It's just so much for so long. Uh, he was incredibly prolific. Yeah, and that kind of, to me, just makes it feel impossible to have any kind of useful take because it's like, well, I could talk about one or two poems, but I'll never be able to read all 26 books. I, I would never want to. I would never want to. No. In fact, I think one thing that I read somewhere was like I, it was a review of one of his books and the reviewer was saying the number of people who would have read this collection of long poems is probably quite small. 
<laughs> yeah. like, you know, five people, or maybe just the editor, or maybe just Ashbury himself. But he yeah. doesn't care about that. No, well, no, that, I mean, that certainly seems true. That was like, a, there's a, Kenneth Goldsmith said something similar about his like insane books that are just like transcripts of newspapers or things where he said like, you, they're not intended to be read. They're intended to, to be known about and to exist. And, and with Ashbury, it seems like, you, I think you're, you're exactly right that, that maybe the, the additional ingredient is like, and he got, he had fun. Yeah, he had fun. <laughs> yeah. And that, mm. yeah, that does seem, in a way, like I, I, He's never been my favorite poet, and I found his poetry frustrating and irritating often when I've gone to it. But, but I do have respect for that. That 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 what drives him is pleasure, even if it's not my pleasure. <laughs> that's that's at least that's <laughs> an honest motivation. That's something that that actually has to do with poetry itself. Yeah. So these two essays, one's very. I guess we can start with the. Shane McRae one, because it's, it's quite short. So Shane McRae wrote this. This seems to be, and I don't know, it, it seems to be basically like a promotional essay for the Library of America. Like, I don't know if, I don't know if it was used as an intro in a book or something, but they got him to write this short thing. And he, and he mentions uh, their, some of their collections, but, but basically he, he's writing about a personal experience. Uh, the, the essay is called My War with John Ashbury. It was on the uh, Library of America website. This, the story he tells is of encountering Ashbery as a 20 year old high school dropout and being sort of bewildered, but also intrigued and then spending several years desperately trying to imitate him and then trying to avoid imitating him and kind of finding him to be this, this black hole. He will just read like a nugget of it. He says, I ineptly borrowed from him until I started writing the poems that would become my first book nine years after my mind was first expanded by his and. He starts a, a, a title of a book with and, and that uh, was inspiring to a, a young uh, Shane. Now I find myself returning again and again to Library of America's two volume collected by far the most comprehensive Ashbury collection in print, as well as to Ashbury's later books. And yet I'm afraid, I, and yet I admit, I'm still afraid when I sit down to read him. I struggled to not sound like Ashbury for years. I still feel as if he might overwhelm me. And in the end, I only managed the trick of not sounding like him by trying a new trick. The trick, it turns out, was, was to not, wasn't to not sound like Ashbury. If that had been what I kept trying to do, I never would have pulled the trick off. The trick was to sound like myself. So what, what did you make of this one just to start? Because this, this was mentioned in a much longer piece that we also read, but I figure we start here. Yeah, well... I wanted this piece to be about three times as long. I feel like Shane McRae was working to a really harsh word limit here. And I feel like there's a lot, lot more to the story that we haven't quite got to. But um, I don't know if you would agree with this, but I feel like almost nobody does this. Nobody comes out and says, this is what catalyzed my writing. This one, in this case, one word, one poet. And I have, I spent years trying to sound exactly like this specific person. Cause like, if you ask poets about like, oh, when did you start writing and who did you read and blah, 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 they'll be vague and they'll be like hand wavy about it. But Shane's like, no, no, no. I wanted to sound like Ashbury and I tried really hard to sound like Ashbury and I couldn't do it. And then eventually I decided to sound like myself. And I really, really relate to that. Like I spent a good, I don't know, maybe five or so years trying to sound like other people, probably longer. Um, 
Don't well, be I vague now, do... Alice. Who, who's who's uh, who is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I I had a sorry. Sorry, I said Shel Silverstein. Though I don't know if you that you know him, and he's a children's book author. Yeah, I'm sorry, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, I had a poetry mentor, um, the poet Bonnie Cassidy, and I would write poems that I thought Bonnie would like, and as such, I wrote poems that I thought sounded like Bonnie. Uh, they didn't, and a lot of them she didn't like, and I grew as a poet because she said so. Um, and it's funny because Bonnie sounds a lot like Gig Ryan, who sounds a lot like Ashbury. And Bonnie also sounds a bit like Michael Farrell, who is known as Australia's foremost Ashbarian, who also put out a collected, uh, a little anthology last year called Ashbury Mode, which had a bunch of Australian poets writing sort of in response to Ashbury. That's really also like shadow. a surprisingly frank title for an anthology. Yeah, no, it's it's pretty great. And so I guess in a weird roundabout way, I also have been trying to sound like John Ashbury <laughs> through third, these third, other third poets who I was trying to imitate. Yeah, third hand. Third hand. So, yeah. Um, I, I don't know. Do you think, like, do you find that people are frank and upfront about that sort of stuff with you or? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, guess, I do think that... There's and I don't I don't know how accurate this is in Australia, but there's certainly a uh, a great uh, there's a cult of originality uh, or even of novelty in, in America. Certainly, like we we really really value pioneers and and you know iconoclasts and new original voices and and in fact like one of the one of the truisms about grad school, which I've always found to be like semi nonsensical, is that that's when you find your voice as a poet. And that's really like the most important thing is to distinguish, you know, distinguish yourself, uh, which I mean, is almost like directly a, like a, a, a capitalist maxim, like, like identify your brand, you know, corner your, your part of the market um, on something. But yeah, I, I mean, I certainly have spent most of my writing life trying to, Im I mean, in imitating a lot of like when I was quite young, a lot of E. Cummings and Billy Cotton, like not cool poets. Um, and uh, and then, you know, later getting obsessed with Larkin and Hausman and even like, you know, a, a couple of living quotes, Richard Wilbur, E. Stallings. And, you know, and then and at times like trying to, as I mean, as, as uh, McCray says in here, like having to put certain books down and avoid looking at them because they're mm -hmm. too infectious. Yeah. Maybe that, that, maybe that's really it. Like there's no, unless you are specifically paying homage to someone, which would probably need to be somebody alive. There's no, there's nothing really to be gained by admitting that you've spent a lot of time imitating someone. And even if you are imitating someone alive, that person probably doesn't really want you to be doing that. So it's hard <laughs> to like, there's no way to do it so that it's um, successfully self-promotional. So there, there is something like, there's something like naked and selfless about saying like, so this was what happened with me. As I think, I think you're right. I think you're both right that like, I'm glad for Shane to be doing this. And I also would love to hear the next, you know, 3000 words on this. On this yeah, for sure. Because while it might not benefit you, the poet, yeah. it certainly benefits others who are starting out and lets them know that there isn't necessarily this thing that is the voice that's going to come through you and make everything okay and all of a sudden you're going to be this original genius like 
you're going to start by imitating specific people. And that's okay. You don't have to be ashamed of that. That's how you learn. Um, yeah. yeah, that doesn't get said very much. Yeah, well, and that's and that's part of what I found. Like maybe the most important thing I figured out about poetry in college was was not anything to do with my own voice or my own anything, but except that I started out imitating anybody who was supposed to be good. And by the time I finished college, I was only imitating people I genuinely liked. So there's still nothing original, but like for, it took a while and it took like partly having people point out like, no, I don't think that that's actually good. So you don't need to try to imitate it. <laughs> like, say, Oh, I can <laughs> yeah. just try to do things that I think I would like if I were to read them. Yeah. Yeah, completely. And like you, you talked about this before in terms of your uh, friendship with Ryan, just about giving each other that permission to say like, no, this person sucks. Just walk away. Yeah. It's fine. Right. Um, no, it was really, and as well as like, this person is, is not cool, but it's pretty and you like it. And so it's okay. You know, like it, that's maybe that's part of it. It's like, I, I learned to, uh, to disregard prestigious chores and embrace guilty pleasures. Uh, <laughs> oh my God. Ashbury is the most prestigious chore though. Like that is such a perfect way to put it. I, I sat down and read uh, a bunch of poems to prepare for this. And there were a few that I really liked. Yeah. I don't want to read them again. I don't want to go back <laughs> to them. Yeah. Are there like, are there lines that like, what's the, the houseman says you should, the no way, you know, you've read a, a good poem is, is you, um, you remember a, not a line the next day and you cut yourself shaving. Um, with, is that likely to happen with, uh, I don't know if, I don't know, I don't know how often you shave, but like, is, is that, is that likely to happen with, with an ash grain line for you? I wrote a couple down, but they just they yeah. just dissolve in your brain, right? Like I wrote a few down. There was one poem that had the line, um, "Oh, leaving the Atosha Station, uh, no forest you can name." That's very pretty, right? Because right. the other, yeah, because yeah, Lerner is named as, as like a, a as a an Ashbury accolade, and that's of course the name of his first novel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. But that poem also includes the line. The clean, fart, genital, enthusiastic, toe prick album series Evening Flames, which is just ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's borderline flarf. I mean, it does. So, all right. So I was trying to figure out <clears throat> uh, what it is about Ashbury that, so, I mean, he, he has a, it, it, when I was in college, like the, 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 the virtue most prized in the workshops I was in was uh, being unpredictable. That was what mm -hmm. people most cared about was like that you would, you know, the people would never guess what came after X word or X line break or X stanza break. And that was sort of the, the best thing you could do. And, and he, he certainly has that down pretty well. Like he, he is, he is just pretty hard to see where an Ashbury poem is going, but I think there's, there's, I was trying to think like there, there are, and obviously part of what he does is, is also just play with language in ways that are new. I mean, that's the thing that first attracted Chain to the, his poetry is like, oh, I didn't know you could do that. And, yeah. and obviously like that is part of, especially early on, you know, when you're falling in love with poetry is just discovering, oh, that that's a thing you can do. But I, I think that there's, in addition to being unpredictable and being, you know, being innovative, 
he's he is very crisp, not maybe in that particular one you quoted, but he tends to be very clean and crisp in his constructions. And he combines like an absolute authority with a total lack of context. Yeah. Like, like it's something I remember hearing David Lynch say that like part of what he did with when he told stories of his movies was he would tell the story and then he would just remove all context, which to me seems like a like a maniacal or sadistic choice but it does seem to be part of what happens with ashbury is like it's not that the person talking is babbling like the person talking is talking this way on purpose is speaking thoughtfully and deliberately and with some kind of intention it's just that we have no way of getting our bearings which is a little bit sadistic right like i go back and forth on this with lynch all the time like i'm a huge david lynch fan but half the time i'm like does this guy hate me is he (laughs) Is he trying to ruin my life? <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And Ashbury, again, just that sense of like, I don't really care what you get from this. I'm just going to write it down. I think that my, my, I, have, I don't know Lynch nearly as well uh, as, as I might, but based on the couple of few movies I've seen, my, my impression is that as with Ashbury and the Greek gods, it's not hatred, it's indifference. Hundred percent. Because I was also thinking, like, like a poet I did really fall in love with in college, Mark Strand, clearly has some some common DNA with Ashbery. But I think maybe what Strand is a little bit less. There's a little bit less of a sense of a um. Uh, what's the Douglas Adams bit? The infinite improbability engine. They're like there's a little bit less of that total randomness generator uh, uh, that there is in Ashbery, and there's just more of a of a consist like part of what Strand does is I think he he produces a consistent, compelling mood or atmosphere. So even when it's so sort of nonsensical, the combination of the authority and the atmosphere feel cool and like something you know like i've said i didn't spend much time imitating ashbury i definitely spent a lot of time imitating poorly imitating uh strand mm-hmm. until i finally, <laughs> finally thankfully gave up the, here's the thing that most i felt like is almost like a trick shane plays on us at the end of this essay the the line that to me felt like god damn it <laughs> that's the whole essay you just skipped it is the trick was to sound like myself yeah like well that's the that's the result of the trick, but how, like, that seems like you're, you didn't tell us anything about what you were trying to do. Like, how do you fucking <laughs> yeah. get there? How do you? Yeah. How do you get there, Shane? Come on. Yeah. Sidebar. Also just to, just to say to listeners, like the, there's an episode where you read one of Shane's poems. Mm-hmm. Um, is it, is it titled Sometimes I Never Suffered? Is it the title? The line, of the, the title of the book is Sometimes I Never Suffered. And that's the, that's the line in the poem, but the poem itself is called I think it's Jim Limber speaks of continuity in heaven. I think that's it. Right, right. It is just so beautiful. It is so, so beautiful. And yeah, it would be great to know how Shane went from Ashbury to there. Uh, So come on the podcast and tell us. I really, yeah, I would really, he, he, in his poetry and his prose, there's definitely a sense of like a, a feverishly talented mind that that sometimes fails to slow down enough for the for the reader to, to catch hold. Uh, yeah, I, w- I would I would definitely love to um, uh, I would definitely love to get Shane um, to talk about any yeah, any number of these things. Um, but yeah, yeah. Go there's, ahead. there's a sense talking about Ashbury though, like talking about a poet who just so clearly doesn't care. I mean, there's a late interview of his that I watched as well where. Um, He's being asked, oh, what about this line? What about that line? And this is from like a recent collection. And he's like, oh, 
I don't really remember <laughs> that. Uh, is that is Kafka in it? I don't remember if Kafka's in it. Um, I don't really remember my poems very well. And it's like, well, if you don't care about these 26 collections and they're hard for me to read and they dissolve in my brain, I'm not very motivated. I've just, yeah, it, that makes me feel like I'm being a little bit tricked to yeah. spend time. So then the my question is, by whom? Because I, I, I feel as if it, it may not be <laughs> like by, by Ben Ash, Lerner. Like, Ash, right. I mean, right by Ben Lerner, but I mean by people who, who by, it's not by Ashbury, it's by Ashbury's importance, about which I think Ashbury also doesn't particularly give a shit. Like no. he, he was, he came of age at a certain time and he was gifted in a certain way and he had success early enough on that he's just been kind of coasting. And like coasting brilliantly at times, like, and I do, you know, like self-portrait and convex mirror is probably the one poem of his I've, I've really read and come back to and and found impressive. Not because I, I haven't found other poems impressive, just because I haven't read that fucking much. But he's he's, um, yeah, I feel like he he was on vacation most of his life, and it was like a fairly productive vacation. And people pestered him for poems, and so he. I mean, I feel like Ashbury's like maybe the last two thirds of his career were him having dinner and people kept asking him for autographs. Like, and he was like, fine, here's a napkin. And so like then, but then like, then the napkins became the subject of like major symposia that you then were were like very influential and important. And that's why you need to learn them. Completely. And, and this, this second piece, uh, the David Sherman Wallace piece, dead poet anxiety starts to get into this question of, did he live a bit too long? And, Mm. Did he outlive, did people start to lose a sense of his importance as it got towards the end? Did we all start to decide, oh, maybe the emperor really is naked here? But I think he also would have been aware of that. Like I found out this morning, my my very favorite ever Ashbury fact is that he taught uh, this poet, Ern Malley, I don't know if you can see him. Um, Who didn't exist, right? Yeah, hoax poet. And yeah. he... He taught uh, the Australian hoax poet Ern Malley for like thirty years, apparently, in his writing classes, and Wait, I just love that. So Ern Malley was the invention of two Australian poets. Yes, but they in his in, in Ern Malley's biography they list Ashbury as like a longtime teacher. No, or, Ashbury so. <laughs> in real life. Sorry, yeah, okay, it gets confusing. Yeah. When we talk about Ern yeah. Malley in real life. Uh, Ashbury loved the work of Ern Malley and taught it in his writing classes oh i sorry i thought you I, yeah i thought you were saying he taught the person earn mal yeah he taught the poems by Ern- yeah oh that makes perfect sense i totally yeah. believe that yeah. yeah 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 i really love that so yeah he he was aware of this uh, sort of trickster tricksterism that was going on all the time and yeah and you get this sense in this late interview that he's still just shrugging and bemused that anyone's asking him about his work so i don't think he would have minded that yeah he he was his own urn mally in some respects i think yeah yeah for sure except maybe without that because the urn mally hoax was like there was some degree of uh like uh hostility and like there was some frustration or resentment in, in the whereas like ashbury seems completely angst free yeah, totally angst-free. Because if I, if I remember, like the 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 two poets who invented Ern Malley and like cranked out a bunch of poems that people then loved, their own work was never as successful as what they invented for Ern Malley. No, yeah. that's kind of the well. One of the tragedies of it is that 
yeah, one of them moved to Japan and kind of wrote from there and the other wrote for a little while and then stopped and they're just neither of them really have any kind of poetic legacy except that they created one of the most influential Australian poets who has ever not lived. Like we will never escape Ern Malley. Never. He is probably, I mean, yeah, I was going to say he is probably the one semi-canonical Australian poet I knew of. Before, like, That's amazing. I, right. I mean, it's like Ern Malley and then John Forbes is really the next most famous one I knew. So yeah, th- so there was this other essay, uh, David Sherman Wallace had the piece, this piece in The Drift, which I had not heard of. And this was from just um, a couple months ago called Dead Poet Anxiety, subtitled John Ashbery in the Age of Social Media. And there were sort of two, he goes back and forth, but it seemed like there were sort of two essays in the essay. One was about John Ashbery's legacy and one was about the the world of, the on mo, the mostly online world of poetry and, and poetry social life today. Yeah, uh, I think they could have been separated. I think there are two essays here and he's kind of mashing them together in a way that's a little bit uncomfortable. But, you know, um, maybe no one will read your piece about John Ashbery, but if you talk about social media, they will. Yeah, and right. so so what was your so so talk if talk if you will about pick, pick one and talk, pick one of the essays and talk about it. We'll, <laughs> we'll break it down. Uh, well, I think you make some good points about you know Ashbury is hard to screenshot, and the way that poems are presented online tends to shape them. I think that's a pretty pretty obvious point, but it's a it's a useful point, I guess. Um, I had a go at in line with your jibber jabber revelation kind of formula yeah. i was like for for the epiphanic poem um i thought well what does an instagram poem want and i came up with the formula bad things are bad this is a poem poems are good things you are okay my for me <laughs> yeah, and- all men are mortal socrates is a man yeah it's really, it's like a <laughs> it's like a nonsense syllogism yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, and it's just, I think one of the things that the writer is sort of saying here is like where you go to poetry online for a totally different reason than you might go to poetry in a book. And I would agree with that. I think when I'm going to Instagram, I'm there because I'm feeling like a little bit shaky, want a bit of reassurance, want to feel a little bit like uh, held and understood or entertained or something. And I want that like you are okay, everything's fine. Everything's fucked up, but everything's fine. Do you want to know my my wife's like stone cold chilling assessment of social media? Well, she loves social media as well, but her her like because she's a psychiatrist. Like her her psychiatric assessment is intermittent positive reinforcement. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, eighty percent like, of the time you're not getting the you're okay, but occasionally you do get it. Every once in a while you turn over a rock and there's a leprechaun and then you're instantly bored with that leprechaun, but you want to see if the next rock might have a leprechaun as well. Maybe there's a leprechaun here. Yeah, most totally. of them don't. Yeah. And, and, and he, he talks, he talks about a couple maybe things that maybe that make Ashbury and not just Ashbury, but like also other poets of his, his and earlier generations less uh, digestible online, though not William Carlos Williams, whose uh, cold plum poem will live forever online. Mm. Uh, mm. But he, the part part of it is that Ashbery wrote some some long poems, and uh, part of it was that he was not very 
he 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 seldom, if ever, uh, advanced a a clear, uh, uh, readily identifiable message in his poems, which does seem to be part of what people want in, in online poems. And then he talks a little bit about Ashbery and this question of identity. That like Ashbery was clearly like one of the most famous contemporary, but you know, openly gay poets. But he was for being openly gay he was. He didn't really talk about it. It was not really something that came up much in his, in his work. He didn't make a, a point of it. And Wallace says that like this might, this seems maybe like a, a, a today maybe seems more like an expression of privilege than anything else, if not an expression just of the the, the repressive quality of the time. Though I do, I mean, I, I don't know, re- reading Ashbery, like I don't get the impression that there was a kind of poetry he was not getting to write that he really wanted to write. Like, I think he was writing the poems he wanted to write. No, no. Um, yeah, like, is it privilege or is it avoidance? Like, if Ashbury started writing today, would he position himself as a queer poet? Yeah, oh, he got, he got, God, God only knows. And I mean, I also think, like, is also, I mean, part of the question has also got to be, like, it, it certainly, like, he, he came of age at a time when people were much less open and there was a much, much more, I mean, there were problems of all, of all, of all kinds that are, that are less, uh, present today, but also, his specific life was such that he kind of got to live the way he wanted. I mean, like he, he would not to say that he didn't encounter shitheads or, or, you know, prejudice, but that I I get the impression like he, he sort of got to do what he wanted all around in most Mm. respects. And so it may have been like, if, if that had been different, if he lived in a different part of the country, say, or, uh, in, you know, if, if he had not been successful in his poetry in the same way early on, maybe, maybe that would have been a different thing. Like it wasn't made to be the center of things for him. And so he was able to sleep with whom he wanted and write the poems he wanted and, and kind of edge out. (laughs) Yeah. One of the things I wrote in my notes here is kind of coming off the back of your last episode where you talked about this lack of urgency that you were seeing in anthologies that you were reading and stuff. And I just thought, you know, is there a less urgent poet than Ashbury? Like, it just doesn't matter. <laughs> None yeah. of it matters. Yeah, that's, yeah, no, that's probably quite, quite true. Not, though, I mean, and that's why I think, that's why I think of like people asking for his autographs, like he, he, he lived a long time and he started publishing early on, but he also published like every couple few years. And he like, you would think there was a more more urgency. I'm always a little bit surprised by like how it is hard to get a book of poems published, but but people who are able to get poems published, books of poems published, seem to publish a fucking lot of them. Like they seem to publish them very very often, and like as if there is this sort of urgency. And again, my, my feeling is always like you'll never be sad that it came out a year later. Mm. He describes in this uh, writing his poems as dipping a a bucket in a in a swiftly flowing stream that seems like both an affirmation and a condemnation of his yeah of his yeah work. wallace is a little bit bitchy after that he says with 26 full lengths full length books of poetry it's a marvel that any liquid remained below right. yeah yeah, the, <laughs> yeah the, I, is there any resentment in the u.s towards somebody who published so much and had and cast such a long shadow because i know that here People who publish a lot are not popular with poets. We don't like them. We want people to stop it, stop putting books out. I wish there were, you know, the the, the O'Connor line where she said, sometimes I am asked if the universities stifle young writers. And my response is that they do not stifle enough of them. 
Um, and my, my feeling is a little bit like, uh, I, I wish people were more resentful of, of poets who publish a, a lot. Yeah, there is, there is some resentment, but I, I will say that I find myself, I would say that less often if I felt like it were said more often. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, th there ought to be, there certainly ought to be that kind of resentment. Um, is there, so there, there is more of a, I mean, maybe just cause it's a smaller ecosystem. There's more of a sense of, is it, is it like, I mean, because there's plenty of like sort of vague uh, and like inconsistently applied language here about, especially like more a couple years ago with the, the, at the height of Me Too, like, you know, lean out and don't, you know, don't take up so much space and, and you know, or, or uh, you know, quiet, quiet down. So there is some of that, but that, that again, it, it tends to be very vague in general. And like my complaint is, as with Twitter, like my complaint with Twitter was never, it's too short. It was, it's too fast. Like my, mm. my, my brother invented a version of Twitter. You know, I suggested like, well, what if there were a Twitter, but you could only publish like once a day, you only put in and, and his response. So what if you could there were a Twitter, but you could only publish once. Like it was just a collection of everybody got one. Um, and you feel, you know, it's like, that's my feeling with poets is like, I, I don't, don't write less and don't, you know, don't, it, it's not even like, don't put out another book. It's just put, just wait a little bit. Just like take your, I were talking to a poet here who was like pretty, you know, like a pretty, pretty successful. Um, I mean, certainly like <laughs> from my perspective, like quite, quite successful, uh, young, youngish poet who'd had a, had a, you know, a, a decent splash of his first book. And he, he said he had two collections he was sending out and trying to get published. And I said, well, have you thought about just taking the best poems from each of them and put, making one? And it was a totally alien thought to him, but like, that's what I always, that's what I want to say to everybody. Mm. So just take your, just fewer with better. Yeah. No, that's what, that's what Bonnie said to me early on. She was like, look, there's no rush. You don't have to make your mark until you're ready. And I was so resistant to that. I was like, no, everyone else has a book. I want a book. I want a book now. And yeah. I'm so glad she slowed me down. In some ways, I wish I had waited another two to five years, but that's also fine. And you have um, to, and you have to get just getting the first one out. You have to kind of purge something. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I really liked what I think this was in the last episode as well. You were also saying like we could stand to tell younger poets like that's great what you're doing. Now keep going, keep working, keep reading, keep writing. Uh, don't necessarily pay attention to any of the like sparkles and praise and gold stars that you're getting. Like, yeah. The pra I mean, yeah. praise, I think is almost worth like praise is good in so far as it keeps you going, but beyond like, if you are still writing, then you probably don't need more praise. Is my suspicion. <laughs> like, don't no, like seriously, like don't read the blurbs on your own book. Don't read reviews. Don't don't like, do, it's not going to, un unless there's like a good, criticism or you need something to like stay afloat it's probably poisonous right is my is my kind of i mean i don't know maybe it maybe just be me but it feels like it's because like one of the best ways to manipulate people is to praise what you want them to do right mm. and i don't think and i don't need to say that like critics are trying to manipulate anyone but like if if somebody tells you and you know what i love about you alice is that you're always on time uh, then like you feel like, oh, fuck, I really got to be on time. <laughs> I will lose this person's love forever. You know, so I, I think like no matter what somebody says about like, this is who you are as a poet. This is what makes your work great. That's the last thing you want to hear. Yeah. Right. That's terrible. 
Yeah, which is where the whole thing of voice becomes an issue because if you so Shane says that he learned to write like himself, and mm. I think that that's that's obviously. Please come on and tell us how, Shane. Tell us Please how. come on and tell us yeah. how. <laughs> but also, I don't know. Could that be a trap? If you if you're being praised for writing, you've got this distinctive voice that is so different to everybody else. Like you're saying, you know, this sort of um, cult of individuality then are you allowed to mess with that? Are you allowed to try to do something different? I heard, I heard a good lecture that Alice McDermott made, uh, not, you know, not novelist, not a poet, though she started as a poet actually, um, uh, where she said something to, to that effect that like it's, the, there is a particular risk that comes with, with artistic success, which is that you, you can continue doing what you have already done well at risk of, self-parody or you can depart from it you know at risk of failure and, and humiliation and confusion i think this conversation is just making me want to stop writing altogether <laughs> <laughs> well but, but writing like writing short poems i think it's, it's part of what's wonderful about that is like that's so scary if you think about something like a novel right like I'm going to yeah. set out to do a completely different kind of novel than like, if I, if I was just successful with a novel and now I want to do something completely different, that feels like I do like that is, I mean, my heart goes out to like people who have early success with a novel, especially if it's very distinctive. And then it's like, well, do I need to totally reinvent it or do I need to totally repeat myself? But with individual poems, it feels like that's part of what's great about that is like, you don't, it's not like the whole book needs to be a, a cohesive hit. It's more like, a handful of poems from it really stand out and some others are like fun to read and then some others are duds and that's fine. So like you, that, that's just, like the poet has a great deal of that. That's part of why I find it like really frustrating when people totally lock themselves into a mode um, when they're writing lyric poems. Cause I feel like, well, you can do, you have different ones in there. You can, you know, like, like Alan Shabira, who's, who's like a friend and is a poet I've, I've enjoyed for a while. Part of what I kind of like about his books it's frustrating, but I also like it is that he'll just have like a different, he'll just have multiple sections where he just does something completely different. And like often I really, really like one section and I don't love the others, but he's just like, he's just working on different stuff and like trying, you know, maybe, maybe the next book, this version of the thing will be better. And but yeah, I, I, um, there is like, there is, there is something really sad, I think about a about somebody who's reached like late middle age, early old age, really only writing a single kind of poem and nothing else his whole life, which is, which is like a lot of tenured American poetry professors. Like that's a whole, whole lot of them. Well, you're making me also think of Clive James who said in an interview really late in his life, like I'm still just trying to write the perfect poem. And now I'm thinking of that comment and I'm like, yeah, but are you having fun? Or yeah. are you really stressed? Right. <laughs> I just, he, I just hope Clive James is okay. You know, like I, that's, that's is he my still alive? concern. No. Okay. <laughs> he's, uh, he's definitively not okay. <laughs> Unfortunately, he's, yeah, I'm with you. I'm, I'm, I'm with you there. There's gotta be, again, you know, it's like Ashbury's way of doing it is not the worst way. Cause like he, he was having fun. <laughs> you don't have to worry about him. And, uh, thank God. Yeah, yeah, David Sherman Wallace does does worry about him some here, but I, in some ways I found his what in a way like as you said like he he seemed maybe to have written the social media part of the 
essay as the the dessert portion you know of which he you know in order to complement the vegetables he was he was really interested in i i in some ways found his just his characterization of contemporary life as a poet to be refreshing in that it like unlike patterson for example just felt very true to life even in it even when it's really it was really awful and depressing like he says uh, without support systems, poets discover themselves to be lackluster hustlers, half-hearted entrepreneurs paying $20 over and over again to enter the book contests that have become poetry's major conduit for publication. For many aspiring authors, self-presentation as an aesthetic project feels necessary, particularly in the case of marginalized people who must be their own boosters. But it also means that success seems increasingly synonymous with the cultivation of a personal brand. But I mean, it just felt like that is that kind of like shitty striving, embarrassed, half-hearted online life felt so much more familiar to contemporary poetry than the peaceful, placid bus driver. Yeah, but he also acknowledges that, like, we can't give up on this dream of being part of the canon, right? Yeah. Like, the romantic image of the poet is powerful, and the dream of posthumous life is one of poetry's oldest attractions. Like, I still believe in that. You know, yeah. I still, I still want to want to. Um, my great uncle was uh, a writer of sea sonnets, and one of his sonnets got into the, the like school curriculum here in Australia. And to me, I'm like, well, that's that's something. You know, maybe I could, maybe I could go for something like that. I don't know. It's just so depressing. Like it, the that characterization. I think he says here somewhere like. Um, most poets, it's not unusual for an emerging poet to have a better website than a Silicon Valley startup. <laughs> Just like, Jesus Christ, like, it's so true. And, and you know, the whole thing about Amanda Gorman getting a modeling contract. And I still remember walking into the bookshop here in Melbourne and seeing The Hill We Climb, the book, and thinking, oh, wow, she's put out a collection. And then I realized that the book is just the poem Yep. And I nearly screamed. <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, I don't know, it didn't even, my only thought was like, is that already in bookstores or will they put it in bookstores after this speech is finished? Like it, it was, it was so, so quick. yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah, that's, I mean, it was, it was, it was inevitable. And yeah, his, his remarks on her are, I think, pretty, pretty apt again, like I know no beef with Amanda Gorman, but as he says, it's, it's, it is a different kind of influence than we might've thought. I mean, the same way that like there is, there's a, the, the definition of fame has, has changed to become more, a little less robust and a little more value, value neutral than, than it maybe once was. Um, and the thing that he said that I thought was really on point about this after he, he brings up Amanda Gorman, he says, increasingly consumers are offered the image of art making as a subgenre of celebrity, and the works of art themselves are allowed to remain laudable but forgettable byproducts. For the serious reader or writer, perhaps celebrity is beside the point, but most find the social orbit difficult to escape. The result is thousands of voices clamoring against the algorithm, riffing on the same jokes, poetry, good, bad, or distinct, good, bad, distinct, or homogenous. Homo that should be homogeneous, I think, is somewhere else. Um, and that, seem that seems qu quite right, that the, the, the poetry itself is 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 secondary i was talking to uh, jonathan farmer last night and he he made the comparison to going to a college football game where 
like you, you might follow the sport and uh, the uh, uh, American uh, football, I guess, in this case, though, I guess you could have a college, college soccer game probably has a slightly different flavor to it, but like co- college football games are, are big spectacles that, that many people, at least here, like far prefer to professional football, even though the, you know, like the game is not played at, at the same level, but it's sort of the, the atmosphere is richer and the, uh, the sense of camaraderie is greater. And the comparison he was making was like, it, it, a lot of poetry, especially like high profile publications of poetry feels like the college football game in that it needs to be a certain thing happening on the field. Like it couldn't just be anything. It couldn't just be bunny rabbits on the field. It has to be people in pads and balls crashing into each other, but it sort of doesn't really matter that much. What it's, as long as it holds the place effectively, that's not the real attraction. It's the, it's the whole atmosphere. And that feels like a lot of how we treat poetry today yeah something just has to fill the poem-shaped void right um, yeah but it has to yeah. be in, with a certain texture not like yeah. you couldn't you there are poems you could put in there that would like make the record scratch but yeah no i just loved this paragraph and i loved that point about the image of art making hmm. being the thing which is kind of what i was trying to say when we were talking about patterson like and a lot of people got in touch with me afterwards being like, wow, you got so wound up about this movie about a <laughs> <laughs> That like, you know, nobody thinks that that's what poetry is, Alice, like calm down. But, but I, do, I do think it's important to push against it because I think, yeah, the reality of what it is to, to try to write a, a decent poem in 2021 means that you've you've got to push against like this kind of manicured like gorgeousness that's constantly calling out to you and being like but you could put up something like very uh simple and pretty and then you could get a bunch of love hearts and maybe maybe that's all you need to do like there's there's a that's a siren call you know going on all the time oh god there's something so um so depressing about this love yeah, we, we've <laughs> gone to a dark place <laughs> Love, love. <laughs> yeah fuck i need a drink <laughs> isn't it like nine in the morning there <laughs> it's 10 or 6 all right i was gonna say i've heard i've heard about you australians <laughs> <didn't know. laughs> oh, okay yeah. so officially you know slee ricketts episode what what this turns out to be <laughs> alice allen stops writing <laughs> matthew buckley smith walks into the forest yeah, never to yeah. return. Well, I was gonna say it was, it was interesting. Like no, nobody came up to me after that episode and said, "Like you got really wound up about that." There's no, there's no, no one was surprised. No one was concerned. <laughs> <laughs> like, that was, sounded about in character for you. That's about right. <laughs> yeah. So now we know who's a bad influence on whom at this point. Uh, I think. <laughs> I I am curious because it it took me. All right. So yeah, I guess I had, a, I had a couple. I had a couple like preparing for this. I ended up having like more tangential questions than I had direct questions. I'll say like it's a it's a good uh, essay. It's slightly unfocused. It feels a little bit like as you said, like two essays. But it is a good essay worth reading. De- Dead poet anxiety in the drift and uh, Shane McRae's very you know too short, too short, but uh, but good essay. Um, My war with John Ashbery. There'll be obviously be links to both of those. Um, I. So I had a couple of thoughts. One was about, um, do you know uh, Harold Bloom's The Anxiety of Influence? I know of it. Yeah, yeah I have yeah. not read it. I, I, read, I read it for the first time a few years ago, and, and I'm not uh, equipped 
I'm, I'm not a scholar and I'm certainly not equipped to read and understand it. My, my impression was a little bit, it's like a 10 page brilliant, insightful piece of literary criticism intercut with a 140 page far out psychedelic like drug trip sequence from a 70s movie. It was, it was made, it was put out in 1973 and it very much feels like it was put out in 1973. Mm-hmm. So he, he ends up coming up with this whole bizarro mythology surrounding like what's basically like a pretty a pretty interesting argument about how poetic influence works, which is like a two, it's a twofold argument. One is that every major poet is really wrestling with a, like a predecessor. It's like really sort of a, in some kind of war with a, a, a preceding major poet. And then the other part of it, which is, uh, which I, I, I was thinking about today is that, is that that here, I'll see if I have the, the, the quote, he says, uh, poetic influence when it involves two strong authentic poets always precedes by a misreading of the prior act, an act of creative correction that is actually and necessarily a misinterpretation. The history of fruitful poetic influence, which is to say the main tradition of Western poetry since the Renaissance, is a history of anxiety and self-saving caricature of distortion of perverse willful revisionism without which modern poetry as such could not exist. I t- totally don't feel like I can... He's speaking with with the you know the godlike authority he always has as a, as a critic as this as a, uh, a formidable you know poetry scholar. I've never felt all that confident in saying this or that was a misinterpretation versus just an interpretation of a poem. But it does seem like I, even in just editing interviews for this, I don't know how you you've felt in going through your own interviews after the fact. You know, it's like one thing to experience at the moment; you experience it very differently when you're listening back through it and cutting spaces or ums or whatever. It is startling to me, even in conversation with like when there's a good rapport or even like an an old history, it's amazing to me how often we end up speaking at cross purposes. Totally. Yeah. Like not, like not just about a particular poem that we maybe, you know, by we, I mean like any two people talk like, not even like it's have you have a specific slightly different opinion about something, but just like the the particular sense of any given question or statement ends up being read at a slight refracted angle by the other person, and it I don't know if that's like a necessary part of it's like like uh like um like you know c- cars and wheels couldn't work without friction. It feels almost like there's a there's a necessary component to that, but it it does seem like that that's like that's the great insight I think of, of his book and it's it's part of what makes me not like I can't ever totally dismiss Ashbery just because it does seem like there's something that a lot of people have searched for and thought they found there even if I don't know if any <laughs> well some of their work ended up being worthwhile and, and some like some of your um your you know models work came came from like attempts to take something from there I mean, wouldn't it be luxurious to be able to dismiss somebody with that body of work, that legacy? Wouldn't it be <laughs> such a relief to just go, actually, no, this is all <laughs> bullshit. But but no, there's there's beauty and there's there's real depth of feeling. There's there's also like misfires and weirdness. Um yeah, I guess if you write that much, you well, it's not even that. It's not like he just sometimes happened to get it right. Like he was clearly, 
yeah, he had access to this well and he just kept going back to it. So yeah, we can't, we can't get away from him, even though talking about him is kind of sad and depressing, but. Well, and, and that's why I, I, I keep going back to pleasure as a guy, because I think like, as with like sex or food or something else, like you don't have to say this thing has no value in order to say, I'm not into it. <laughs> like, I'm, like it may be that it has value, but thankfully I don't have to like eat it or go to bed with it or like wear it or what, you know, like it's not for me. <laughs> so, like, I'm going to let others enjoy, enjoy that particular dish. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That seems like a sensible approach. So I'm, I'm also curious because, because it was, again, it was one of the things that you said in our conversation that didn't register at the moment, but then I sort of heard later in, in going back through the recording, you said you've been doing this for 10 years, this being poetry. And mm-hmm. I think based on something else you said in another episode that you're, I think we are, I always assume everybody is either much younger or much older than I am, but I think we yeah. may be about the same age because yeah, I thought I think you were, you were well, I may be a little, but I mean, you, you said you were in high school in 97, 98. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, me too. So we were, yeah. we're at least in, we're in spitting distance of each yeah, other. Yeah. I'm, I'm 38. I was born in 1982. Okay. Yeah. I'm 39. I was born in 82 as well. So, right. So you're right. heaps older than me. So he, I've, yeah, got, exactly. I've got so far, much time. Far, I'm fine. Far, far. I'm fine. Yeah. Uh, what, what was I reading the last time? Oh, it was, it was Alyssa Gabbert that you know, one feels like one is on a walking sidewalk into the void. Maybe she was right after all. So uh, what did that, but what did you mean by like, when you say you started 10 years ago or you've been doing this for 10 years, what is how did you mean that? Because I don't like that both feels long and short. Uh, I just meant that when I decided to try to actually write a poem rather than sit around feeling smug because everyone was saying that one day I'd be a writer. The day that I, I started, like, I actually tried to do that was in about 2007. So getting on like well past 10 years now, actually more towards 15. But you've, you've been you've been writing for a long time. And did you why what was it that because I mean I'm just curious like that you did you were not you didn't do an English degree in college and you were not you've not done like a a, a degree program in in poetry uh which you're you're not missing much <laughs> uh but you, like it was specific I'm curious like what why why did you had a sense that people said like you were going to be a writer but then why would you it almost feels like if people said like you're going to be a great athlete and you're like so one day I picked up a hula hoop it's like, like, why did you, then, like, why did you, why, why was it poetry that you said? Like, there was something that you, like your friend, were like, I want to join this cult. What, what was the, why that choice? I can't answer that question. I, I don't know why it had to be poetry. I just, I just know that it did. I know what spurred me to, to sit down and actually do that work was, you know, the thing that drives me most of the time, which is just searing creative jealousy um i i had a a friend you know i was uh, doing uh, islamic studies and she sat down next to me and introduced herself and then talked about how much she was writing she's like oh i I wrote i write a thousand words a day i wrote five thousand words yesterday and i was like oh fuck you bitch i'm gonna write something too (laughs) and it was just yeah no i mean look the quality aside um the fact that someone was actually doing it it made me feel like oh whoa okay uh the test has already started and i haven't even found the exam room yet like i need i need to start now and um and so i did and i was lucky that like 
the first couple of poems I sent out had like tiny little skerricks of, of minor success and that was enough for me to keep pushing through once I started aiming a bit higher and getting summarily rejected for many years. What, did, what was the word you used, skerricks? Yeah, just like little, you know, tiny little staple journals being like, yeah, that, that'll do, you know. Maybe I'm, I don't know if I'm hearing your accent or if I'm hearing a word I've never heard before, skerricks. Skerricks. Well, spell it? Look it up. All right. How, how do I look it up? How do you spell it? It could be spelled about 15 different ways. I don't know how you spell it. All right. All right. You don't know how to spell it. It's not a real word. <laughs> but yeah, you, you basically just sort of started, started uh, on, on your own, just going from, from scratch. Yeah. And, and you know, I guess um, a little bit, like I feel like Shane's essay is sort of, prompting me to try to be a lot more honest and, you know, like listening to your podcast as well as sort of pushing me in this direction. But like, I feel like it's important to say too, that for, for many years, I just wrote and didn't read. I just wrote oh, yeah, stuff yeah, yeah. and was like, oh, this sounds like a poem. I'm going to send it and, and see what happens. And then once I started getting pushback and things started coming back to me with their tails between their legs, I was like, oh. Maybe I better actually look into what this really is and figure out if I can actually do it. And yeah, I started, I mean, so yeah, I guess I was about 25 when I started writing and I didn't really start getting serious and actually reading until I was sort of in my early 30s. So I've always felt like I was just so, so late to everything. I think, yeah, I mean, I think that, that if you don't feel that, then either you're like Alexander Pope who taught himself like Latin, Greek and French by the time he was 15, or you, or like, you're not being honest. Like, you know, like all, all, you, you have to be, you, you are always late to the game. If you're with the, the Leo Hardy line, like everything has improved since Homer except poetry. I mean, I'm honestly, I mean, I'm just impressed that you were able to kind of come to some of those recognitions on your, own without being having to be like walloped about the head because I, th I think what you said about like writing a lot without reading a lot is really really common and I, I certainly was incredibly lazy about writing or about reading for for long long years. especially like when I in the one thing I forgot to praise in the Michael Robbins book was that it, it unabashedly um, celebrates uh, smoking cigarettes which is which is refreshing which I've not seen in a while in which like you know Cameron or any young person who happens to listen like cigarettes are bad don't smoke them but it's the best drug in the world and it's about I mean for writing there's like nothing is better and like definitely for the years when I was like really smoking heavily you can just write all night you could write endlessly and uh and also at the same if you're me often forget to bother to fucking read anything uh, along the way so I think I think like you're, you're, you're like you're, you're right to feel hangdog about that, but I also think like that's really really common for young poets. Yeah, and I I don't know if it's useful to bring it back around to this to this essay, but I feel like that's the thing that Wallace isn't really properly saying or isn't properly willing to say is that yeah, a, a lot of these poets who are you know doing the the image of art making um, just aren't reading. Like I. I was sort of like vacillating about whether to bring this up, but I have another friend who doesn't like poetry and finds my interest in poetry like very like, oh, good for you. Like she's very <laughs> like, oh, that's sweet. 
And then one day she handed me this book by an Instagram poet by the name of Kate Bayer. And she's like, Alice, I found poetry. I found my way into poetry. And I'm like, oh, this is great. She's like, I get it. I understand why you do what you do. And then I read this book and I was like, oh my God, this isn't what I'm trying to do. <laughs> Please don't misunderstand. What do you think of when it comes to like truly, truly the bad, bad, like Insta poetry stuff? Well, like I've, I read it, there, there are a few of these, Ruby Cower among them, who really, it seems to be truly, tr truly trite and substantial uh s silliness how do you feel about that as a like i try not to begrudge anybody their pleasures in reading poetry do you think that has any relationship to uh, other poetry or like poetry you might care about as a as a as a gateway drug or as an anything or is it just a basically a separate game yeah like i don't know if it's like really lame to take the position of well at least my friend is is starting to become comfortable with the form and maybe eventually she'll read something else and and then she'll look back on this stuff i mean you know i can hardly sit here and be like oh i wrote for five years without reading anything and sent out a bunch of poems and hoping they were going to get published and then turn around and say like oh someone like kate bayer is 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 not legitimate is not poetry you know like that's 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 a totally bullshit position but look it's just hard not to be resentful because so much adoration so you know like the such a such a big big profile so much like love coming towards that poetry it's not that not that i want it instead but it's just like there's there's better stuff out there but then you know yeah. then you just sound like a wanker i mean if you are going to be somebody who trapped. runs a poetry podcast and you don't want to sound like a wanker you probably it's probably a lost battle but i don't know what you mean <laughs> you know, say, you, your friends are so much more sane and patient and gently and trusting and credulous you know uh yeah, I mean, I, I do. Yeah, I do. Kind of wonder, like, as with as with any sort of intro, like, there are songs my daughters love that, that are not good <laughs> songs, but I trust that maybe they're like at a certain point. If it doesn't get cloying in your mouth, then maybe you're not gonna ever like poetry. <laughs> like at a certain point, if you keep if it, you keep coming back to the same thing and it keeps being satisfying to you, then like, all right, fine. But for, you know, pro presumably there are some people at least who read that stuff and kind of get a little charge out of it and in the same way that like you might you might hear some kind of like oblique soulful pop music lyrics and think like oh that's really deep but then like you know then you get older and you like other things are a little bit more satisfying presumably for some people it's got to be a, a way in but you know probably for plenty it it never really gets like plenty of people, plenty of people's like taste in tv never improves <laughs> over their lifespan <laughs> so why should it be why should it be so different with poetry yeah and when when what you're saying is oh no come into this um wallace calls it the small back room like come in here like we're reading ashbury it's like that doesn't sound like fun no <laughs> i don't want to yeah. do that yeah it's it's a hard it's it's hard to make the case sometimes and particularly when you, when you've got Ern Malley in your, in your, um, you know, like the the biggest presence in the poetry canon is a fake and a hoax and, um, 
that just kind of colors everything. At least it does for me. Um, yeah. What do you, so personally speaking, do you, cause I, I don't, I, I don't know that I know of Ern Malley. I can't think of a single poem of, of his I've read. What do you think of the poems themselves? Could I read one? Yeah, or please, please, please. A little please, bit yeah. of one? Yeah. I mean, it's not like I was not angling to do that. Oh, um, yeah. I was going to say, you, you've held up that book a number of times. I've been, I'm very, yeah, yeah, I got I'm, the book here. My, my wife is, uh, I'm very bad at reading body language. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I picked this one because uh, the title is Colloquy with John Keats. And it's got this um, epigraph from Odes of Solomon. And the Lord destroyeth the imagination of all them that had not the truth with them. This is just the first stanza. I have been bitter with you, my brother, remembering that saying of Lenin when the shadow was already on his face. The emotions are not skilled workers. Yet we are as the double almond concealed in one shell. I have mistrusted your apodictic strength, saying always, yet why did you not finish Hyperion? But now, I have learned not to curtail what was in you, the valency of speech, the bond of molecular utterance. So it's just total gibberish, but it's it's not like immediately recognizable as such. Is it? So I'm curious how people read that. Is it read as funny? Yeah, I've been to readings where we we have like recited you know, Mally poems to each other. And it's, it's hilarious. Everyone just falls about. But I mean, is it like, I need, I need to track down There's a guy I knew in college who, who went, on, went on to have a fair amount of success in poetry, but he, he was like a very funny, very smart guy, but he wrote, like he got into the most prestigious writing program in, in the country with a poem called shit laser. And like, he, nice. he had another poem called tits and ass. And like, it was all basically like all of his poems were, he, I mean, very smartly, but like deliberately very stupid and bad, but in a way that was really funny to read. And so that, that reads to me like, like a parody and as a parody, it could be pretty, I mean, again, like, I guess it, it was a parody and it is pretty funny, but it, but it, is it not received that way? Like, was it, was Ern Malley himself read as a parodist? Not at first. No, he was he was read as a genius. Okay. Huh. Like only so, once, only once they came out and said, "No, we made it all up." And then right. Then did then it. people read it in like Bill Murray quotation marks as? I, I think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that would make it hard to. That would that would um, that would be a fly in the ointment. As it's I a bit paralyzing. Yeah. I mean, and people, so people still read that, that as like serious, good poetry today um, or they read it as, I mean, is it, is it read as like as Andy Kaufman kind of like it's. Yeah. That's a good comparison. Actually. I think people still go back and forth. Um, David Brooks, who I mentioned last time we chatted has this huge long book about the Mally hoax and tries in a very complicated way to make the case that they knew exactly what they were doing and they were actually making something very artistically worthwhile and beautiful. And they didn't do it in an afternoon. They did it over years and, you know, they were 
they were harking back to this other hoax that was happening in France. So like, you know, we, we, um, we can't let go of it. Yeah. Yeah. That does feel, yeah. I mean, in a way, like it feels almost like, like it's Australia's one that got away. Like there's like, like you're sort of hoodwinked in a way, but also taken in and like, you can't quite like, I know she wasn't good for us, but boy, we, you know, like I can't stop. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I write all my love songs about her still. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I can see that leaving a sort of a mark. And when was that exactly? Uh, 1944. Okay. So yeah, I guess there's a, there's a slim chance that Ashbury was aware of the well, no, he would have been a bit young, I guess, but he might have heard about it at some point. It's so perfectly Ashbarian. Yeah, I mean, that's no, and you, as you said, he taught he taught him for years and years. So would you, do you have a copy of either of the two Ashbury poems that you mentioned really liking, Some Trees or the the one about the office? Yeah. Would yeah. you, would you uh, read one of those for us? We can actually hear something that, that is like good, good Ashbury and- Good you know, Ashbury. Yeah. I feel like it's so basic to read some trees, but I, I, I don't. I, it doesn't. I'm, I'm sure I've read it at some point. It doesn't come to mind, so I don't. Yeah. Oh really? Okay. Yeah. I, I, you know, I feel like everyone's gonna. Do, it's gonna be the biggest eye roll ever. They started rolling their eyes before, before <laughs> the music kicked in. Okay. All right. Okay. Some trees. These are amazing. Each joining a neighbor, as though speech were a still performance. Arranging by chance to meet as far this morning from the world as agreeing with it, you and I are suddenly what the trees try to tell us we are. That their merely being there means something. That soon we may touch, love, explain. And glad not to have invented such comeliness, we are surrounded. A silence already filled with noises. A canvas on which emerges a chorus of smiles. A winter morning placed in a puzzling light and moving our days put on such reticence these accents seem their own defense yeah that is different than a lot of the ashbury i think of when i think of ashbury partly because it feels earnest yeah apparently people read it at weddings all the time yeah so there's some of the same opacity and lack of context in that one but they're even just the the suggestion of two people being together, being in love, a longing and an attempt to like, there's a feeling there at least that the, some of the, the opacity or the, what is, what's Steph Burt's line? The um, elliptical quality of it feels like it is, it is a faltering attempt to communicate something rather than, rather than just a, a misdirection. I, I just find it really moving for that reason because it's just talking about that. Um, you know, it's soon we may touch love explain. It's not, it's not happening yet. It's not happening now. Yeah. There's a, there's a distance between the two people in the poem. Um, although I think I read somewhere that Ashbury's generally talking about a plural you, like not necessarily one person, but, I don't know. It's just, it's very quiet and romantic and yeah. It turns out I'm really bad about, bad at expressing why I like things in poetry. It's hard. It's yep. hard to do. It's hard. It's yeah. hard. 
it's re- it's really hard. And it, I don't know if this is true in Australia, but nobody wants to fucking review poems. It's one. It's like one reason I can't ride Elizabeth Gabbard too hard because like people don't want to do that work. Yeah. Like it's really thankless for the most part, and it's hard to do. And most people will talk about something else rather than talk about poetry. Like, I mean, it's hard to like find anybody to pay to write poetry reviews. Yeah, I hate doing it. I absolutely hate doing it. <laughs> have you done, have you done much? Yeah. Um, well, cause Bonnie used to be the reviews editor at Cordite. So she would ask me to review books and um, it was really good for me to do it, but it's just so hard because you almost invariably like are, are at least peripherally aware of the person that you're reviewing at least when I started out, I felt like I was missing huge chunks of context. So I couldn't really like say with any authority why, you know, what someone was even doing. So yeah, it it forced me to learn a bunch of stuff. I don't think the reviews that I wrote were were particularly used to anyone. And it's always just that, that sort of pattern of like this poet, few bad things, but they're great. The end. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, even that you're able to include few bad things is, uh, you know, stands apart from most American criticism, which is oh, it's so gentle, so, so just gentle. long. It's long form blurbing. I mean, it's not even like I, I, I'm even if it's just like neutral description. I feel like that's a triumph because <laughs> uh, it. I mean, no, because so seldom is it. Is it even that? It's just. It's just. Uh, polysyllabic thumbs up you know that's like there i mean there are like blurbs are also the the the, the worst truly but like you like it was interesting reading i just so tonight <laughs> i walked up before uh, talking to you i walked up to get the mail uh and tonight your book finally arrived so i no literally like read the first poem and i read the blurb on the back from bonnie cassidy and that one actually is sort of oddly descriptive of like a a person sort of I mean, in a way like she's sort of describing like you're trying to the process of your sort of figuring out how to write poems so it feels a little bit more like a like an actual paragraph with sentences in it um rather than just you know a, a paragraph paragraph shaped smear on the back of the page, you know back cover <laughs> but it's funny because those paragraph shaped smears set up this expectation right like so when when bonnie sent that to me um and you know I respect her so much and I owe her so much. And she's also like, she's a genius and a lovely person. But I wanted a gold star. And she basically, <laughs> she, wrote, she wrote this blurb that was just like quite descriptive of like, here's what Alice is doing. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> quietly heartbroken. That's, no, but that's, I mean, I think, yeah, that's, that's my favorite blurb. What's the, it was on the back of, um, Ben Marcus's first novel, Notable American Women, the blur. It was, I think they may have gotten rid of it on it, but on the, like, on the arc I got, it was, um, the, the blurb was, don't believe a single word that comes out of ben, Ben's rotten, filthy heart. It was, it was his father. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, like, like a somewhat honest blurb is, is incredibly, incredibly refreshing. This is also why I think, I mean, again, like don't read your fucking blurbs. Don't, don't yeah don't read anything anyone says about your poems unless it's i feel i feel like my, my rule of thumb is like unless it's someone who's in the ship with you you know mm. like someone who's in in some way on the hook with you either like as a long time like f- friend person you're like reading with and corresponding with you know or like a 
spouse or like somebody, you know, so sometimes family can be the worst readers, but like, yeah, somebody from a distance just giving you a thumbs up for whatever they think you're doing. So that's the worst, it's the worst thing in the world. And, and I think what, I mean, what is true for blurbs here is I think exactly what's true for journals here, which is, as you said with Eleanor, like nobody fucking reads them. The one thing they read is the table of contents. And when you read, mm-hmm. like the purpose of blurbs is the list of names. And that's really it. Like, yeah, you could, well, you, sorry, go ahead. No, sorry. You just reminded me of something like I urgently have to tell you. So, Oh, yeah, yeah, please. Here's my best poems of Jane Kenyon. Oh. Um, yeah, so this came out from Grey Wolf last year, I think. Oh, nice. Um, selected by Donald Hall. I think it is a batshit boring selection. Oh, really? I think he chose all the most boring poems. But there is a blurb on here from none other than our friend, friend of the podcast, Kaveh Akbar. Uh-huh. And I'm kind of like, why? <laughs> why? <laughs> why? This just annoyed me because Kaveh says it's easy to forget she was a visionary to a mystic. No. <laughs> no. No, no, no. Jane Kenyon would be so pissed off with that. I mean, it's just so condescending to start with, but then, like, it's easy to forget she was a visionary. T- I mean, why, like, why, why begin she with... She doesn't have to be a mystic. No. She was quite, she I mean, she, she's quite down to earth, as I recall. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. It does seem like, like Hall was the worst person to, I mean, you see why they picked him because he's famous, but like, why would you... It seems like unfair to do to him also. Like, yeah, like but don't... yeah, I mean, nobody else could have. But like, these are not these are not the best poems of Jane Kenyon. Just, just know that. That was my conversation with Alice Allen. You can find her as always at the Poetry Says podcast and at poetry underscore says on Twitter, as well as somewhere on Instagram, but I couldn't for the life of me figure out where. Maybe she has a private account and doesn't want you to find her there anyway. As I uh, said before, I'm hoping Alice will come back and we'll, we'll have a few more of these sort of bullshit sessions. I am going to be on uh, her podcast, Poetry Says, in a month or so to talk about whatever the fuck she wants to talk about. I mentioned uh, bef- before that I, there are going to be some some interesting guests coming up. Please do feel free, as always, to write me at sleerickets at gmail.com to suggest guests or topics you'd like to hear about, uh, or as well as any, any thoughts you have about anything we have said here today. Thank you, as always, for listening. And with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then.